There we go. We're going to be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. And uh, we're going to just pause here and pray for Lorraine. You, you said, uh, was her name, right? Lorraine? Yep. Okay. Before we get into our text this morning. Father, we do come before you. We want to pray for uh, this woman, Lorraine. We ask, Lord, that you would just uh, work in her life. And, Lord, we ask that you would be with her in these, uh, this operation to follow. And we thank you, Lord, we can lift each other up in prayer. You're the God who cares, and you're the God who hears. You're the God that meets our needs. Uh, more than anything, we thank you that you're the one who came in to seek and to save that which was lost. And Lord, I don't know the spiritual needs of this woman or even all of us that are here present, but I do know, Lord, that you know our hearts. You know what we are in dire need of. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself, even today, that throughout our land and throughout this world, many would call upon you for salvation and turn from their sins. And we thank you so much for the word of God. And as we open it this morning, I pray you'd bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 50, uh, excuse me, 14, verse 53. We've been in our study in the Gospel of Mark, looking at this uh, now, since uh, the end of 2014, somewhere in there, we're coming up on two years, uh, I guess August of 2014 we started, and we are in chapter 14, so we're moving along, uh, getting closer to the end, uh, but I have enjoyed going pretty much verse by verse as we've gone through this gospel account, and I always try to introduce things a little bit or bring us up to speed if you weren't here the last time or in our study as we've looked at that, uh, the Gospel of Mark is unique in among the other Gospel writers in that he stands alone focusing on the, the uh, miracles of Christ. All of them have the miracles recorded, but particularly presents Christ as the perfect servant, the Son of Man, the one who's come, and the one who is in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And as we've gone through that, we know that there are certain key words that resonate in the mind, especially in the Roman world. And the book of Mark was written uh, to not only the Jewish people, but also to the Romans that were there, the Gentile world. And it focuses on certain key aspects that would resonate among the Gentiles. But he uses words like immediately, right? And it was like a servant or a soldier would know exactly what that meant. All right, he immediately was going. He was doing the will of the Father. There was no delay. It was in the perfect timing of God. Last time we looked at Christ as he was in the garden. Remember, he was praying. This is the night of his betrayal. He has just broken bread and shared a Passover meal with his disciples. He goes out to pray in the garden of Gethsemane, that place of the olive press. And there he is very literally being squeezed upon as his impending death approaches. And as he learns or knows that the hours to follow will be tremendously painful hours, suffering. And he will eventually go, not only having suffered the chastisement and being punished and cruelly treated over these hours, but he will go and he will bear uh, the sins of the world on the cross. And there at the cross he would suffer and taste death for every man, the Bible says. And I'll tell you, that in itself would have been just an overwhelming sense of, of agony as Luke describes it. He was in agony in the garden, right? He knew this was coming. And yet, in all this, as the book of Hebrews says, he was tempted as we are yet without sin. Totally sinless. As he had been, right 
for all eternity, God the Son. But remember, he entered into humanity in, uh, through that virgin conception. And then the birth in Bethlehem, he grew, as Luke puts it, in, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. And as he grows, he gets to the age of about 30, he begins his public ministry. That's how Mark opens up his gospel account at the baptism of Christ. And we looked at that a long time ago now. But the, the public ministry is what's in focus here. And then, in that, nearing that end of that three years later, is where you come to this chapter where Jesus is about to be betrayed. At age 33. And there he would go to the cross. All this was taking place. All this was in fulfillment of the scriptures. All this was in part of God's plan. You see... Somebody needed to take the sins of all of our our sins, the sins of the world. He had to bear them. He had to pay the price for them, which was death. And yet he himself could not be a sinner. That's why he had to be perfect and sinless in every way. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? Well, we come to uh, this section. Just prior to this is the arrest that goes on in the garden. You remember that crowd... Uh, maybe several hundred people that show up there with a contingent of Roman uh, soldiers, and they all show up there to arrest Jesus. He goes willingly with them and heads down that winding path through Gethsemane down to the city of Jerusalem, which begins a night of trials, literally trials, where he'll stand before men and they will accuse him and they will uh, tell us and tell them and tell him that he's blaspheming and try to find a charge that will stick because they want to see him dead and really that's a picture of all of us isn't it a picture of how we prefer darkness rather than light that's what john's gospel says men prefer darkness rather than light because their their deeds are evil and here in the night hour you have these that have arrested christ They hastily arrange certain trials. This one we're going to look at is before Caiaphas, the high priest. And there Jesus will be accused and he will be found guilty because they've already judged him before he even stands. Let's begin reading in verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even... Then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? (coughs) What is it? (coughs) Excuse me. What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest tore his clo- then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. 
What do you think? And they all condemned him to death, or deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. We read here a a very, uh, I guess a sad account, but an account that was in keeping with what God had uh, planned uh, from even before creation. We go back up to verse 53, and you see Jesus being led away. And what you have here is what you'd call a travesty of justice. And I'm going to get a drink of water here for a second. Here we go. You guys always worried his voice is going to give out, but no, I still have some energy, so be careful. And if I run out of water, we have to quit, but that's it. Thank you for those that, that bring that, by the way, and, uh, and help. Uh, but you have Jesus as he's being led away, and you have a, what you hear is a trial that's going on, and it's, it's a trial that should never have been by at least the legal standards of the day. There's no justice in this. That's a word that comes up regularly in our topics of conversation and in our media and in our world today about justice and injustice and those kind of things and legal things. And there's a lot of people out there that are looking for legal loopholes and this kind of stuff. And in reality, you don't see what you see going on here is uh, one of those things that man tries to devise using his own legal standards or God's and some of God's legal standards a way to convict God. And that isn't the way it works, is it? Really what you have here is Jesus at his first coming. When he came, he did not come to judge the world. So he's coming again. He will be the righteous judge. And he will come again to judge the world. But on his first coming, he didn't do that. He came as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 as a lamb to the slaughter, right? And there Isaiah says as a, as a sheep is dumb or unable to speak, silent before its shearers. So he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, right? And that's what he, he was doing, silent for the most part. Very little dialogue that occurs in the gospel writings as you read of the uh, uh, parallel accounts to this uh, of Jesus answering anything. He was mostly silent. That was in keeping with the prophecy here is the judge of all who is being brought to trial. I find that sadly ironic in this whole process. Sometimes we have to be reminded of that. Whether or not we get away with things down here, God doesn't allow us to get away with sin. And God sees all. And someone has to pay the price for sin. Little did these people know, this high priest and the elders of Israel, know that the one who stood before them would someday judge them. And he would judge them perfectly righteous. Because he's the only right judge. It was Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray, former Supreme Court Justice. He once informed a man who had appeared before him in a lower court. And the man had escaped conviction out of a technicality. We've all heard of cases like that. Justice Gray said this uh, to the man, I know that you are guilty and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. There is a difference. God's justice is perfect and righteous in every way. Man creates laws. And as you know, and as we read through this, what you have here is Jesus being brought before the elders of Israel. It was called the Sanhedrin. 
And the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 appointed men. They sat at, and it means to sit together. That's what the Hebrew word means. And they were a council. And they basically conducted the civil and religious affairs and the legal proceedings around that uh, with the Jewish nation. They had actually, just prior to this, a year before, been given, uh, they had been, the, the Romans had removed the ability of the Sanhedrin to pronounce or convict people of, of a death sentence and then proceed with that. They could not actually enact the punishment of death. They had lost that ability. And actually, in their own Talmud, when they write of this, they looked at it as the scepter of Judah had been taken away. By the way, read Genesis chapter 49, and you'll find there in the prophecy of the blessings of, of Joseph there, you have uh, talking about the scepter of Judah will arise, all right? someday and that phrase is talking it talks about shiloh shiloh is the name there it's messianic the jews recognize that and you know what the jews lost the scepter of of of, uh, shiloh or the scepter of judah which is a kingly thing and they testified later on just a few years after this event that shiloh had not come yet shiloh had come he was in their midst Messiah was there. And this is the account from the New Testament of that very act that was taking place. Well, I want to speak to you this morning a little bit about Israel being judged at the judgment seat. And I'm not picking only on Israel here by any means. I'm following the scripture as we go down through it. But John, the Apostle John, wrote of Jesus when he came and he, of course, identifies him in the very first chapter as the one who is the word, the, the logos. He is the one who is the uh, actual, actual message of God in every way. And it says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us, all that. But in that it says this, he came unto his own, his own was Israel, and his own received him not. Not everybody in Israel, actually just about uh, a little over 50 days from this event that we're reading about here, there would be 3,000 people brought into faith and in, into the new entity called the church, made up of mostly, at that point, saved Jews. Later, saved Gentiles would be added to the church, and they'd be one in baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, called the church of God. No longer a spiritual distinguishing uh, between uh, Gentile and Jew, but the church. And they were called Christians there first at Antioch. People of the way, right? Well, that was yet future from this event we're looking at. And right now it's Israel. They're in focus. And he's come to his own. And his own don't even realize who he is. And if they do, they conspire in their hearts to put away with him. We'll not have this man rule over us, was the consent. There are a number of things about this trial that should bother us. And it should bother us, number one, in the very way that it was uh, brought about in its meeting. The way it came together. First of all, Jesus is arrested in a garden of Gethsemane. It's in the night. And according to John chapter 18, he's first brought to the home of Annas. And Annas is the uh, father-in-law of the current high priest in Israel, which was Caiaphas. And there he goes from Annas's house all the way, and he brings him to the court of Caiaphas, the high priest, the one who was basically the, the in charge of the, the priestly order and 
the Levites there in Israel. He would have been the one who would have been the ruler of the Sanhedrin as well. Although they ruled as a body, they also looked to Caiaphas, who was an appointed high priest. And we've already looked at some of these guys before in our study through Mark. When they rear their head, they do not do so, for the most part, in, in faith. There are a few that are mentioned, and they seem to get it, all right? There was a member uh, named Nicodemus, John chapter 3, right? And he comes to Jesus by night. There, not looking to arrest Jesus, but inquiring, are you really the Messiah? Later, Nicodemus is seen at the crucifixion, too. So it seems like a few of them understood. But as a governing body, they, at this point, were conspiring to do away with their own Messiah and get him out of there. This trial met secretly in a court of the high priest. It wasn't done publicly. You know, I find that interesting because that's how man, when we devise things, we want to do evil, we want to do something wicked, we want to make sure that we, we push something through. We do it in secret. Nobody should know about it, right? And we kind of give it over to a, a, a group that maybe is, we think they know better. Do they? No. They didn't. Those that were entrusted with the very oracles of God and entrusted with the law of God and all that were now manipulating it as best they could to try to trump up charges against a man who was totally innocent, a man that you couldn't find one sin in. They did that in darkness, in secret. It was illegal because, number one, the the Jewish law prevented such a proceeding. The law itself present, prevented that kind of, or was, uh, it, it was not to proceed in that way. By the way, it was not to even happen on the night of a feast day. And this is the night of Passover. And this is taking place. Just prior to this event, you had the Passover meal being shared. And, and that would have been instituted the day of Passover, which would end at sundown the next day on that Friday when Jesus would, well, he would have died just before that, and he died on Passover, on a feast day. He was tried on Passover. The law said that it wasn't to occur. Trials were not to occur on feast days. It was illegal because of where it was held. It was actually supposed to be held in the temple area, in the Temple Mount, in a place called the Hall of Hewn Stones. That's where religious and civic uh, trials took place, where the Sanhedrin had authority over them, and it was on the Temple Mount. Why on the Temple Mount? Because it was a public place, and everybody could see the proceedings of what's going on. They could come and go. We borrow from that in our own criminal court systems, civil court systems today, where it is, for the most part, open to the public. Not always because of space and those kind of things. But we recognize and have throughout the centuries in the West that when it comes to judicial proceedings, they should be done with the public in, in view as well in that. Both because of the way it speaks to us but also in the way that it is conducted fairly for the individual. That didn't happen. Jesus was not afforded that right that night. He was also uh, a number of different things there that they did. It was illegal because of the way it was held. And you find here, first of all, the trial was illegal because it was on a feast day. It was also on the eve of the Sabbath. All right, And that also was something that 
was prohibited because of the way trials went. Uh, there, it would violate the Sabbath if it continued into that. And so that was one of those things the Jews didn't do. There was a guilty sentence that could uh, only be handed down the day after a trial. And that was the way they proceeded legally. So if there was a guilty verdict, it had to, you had to wait one day before that was pronounced. That would put it on the Sabbath day. And that would have been a violation of God's law on that. The charges against Jesus were changed numerous times. You read throughout the gospel accounts and they're looking for witnesses. They're looking high and low. Get us some false witnesses. Somebody that can stand here and speak about this man and what he's done. They're looking for something, a legal way of tripping him up. I find that interesting because that's the way man works. We, we just think there must be some loophole to all this. I can't deal with Jesus the way he really is, been presented in, in the scriptures. And that's what people think. They would rather have a Savior that somehow was sinful like they are or we are. Well, you know what? You can't have a Savior like that because he can't save you. He can't. But that's what we'd like. And so men devise ways of, of presenting Christ and finding some false way. I, I remember years ago, uh, somebody came up with a, a, a film. And I think it was The Last Temptation of Christ. That was the film. And in that is depicted a scene where Jesus has what appears to be a lustful moment towards Mary Magdalene. And it was scandalous. I remember many Christians said, that is not in the Bible. You know what that is? And it isn't in the Bible. That's man trying to take God and bring him down to man with man's morality, man's sinfulness. Let me tell you of Jesus, of the three different apostles spoke of Jesus. One said this, he knew no sin. I like that. Peter said he did no sin. And he's also, I think it was John said, in him there was no sin. There's no sin in Christ. No sin. He never had a lustful thought. He never, had, uh, he never stole from somebody. He never lied to his parents or his friends or his school teacher. He never cheated on a test. He never violated even the laws that God had ordained. Those Ten Commandments that hang back there in the back of the church, Jesus is the only one that ever met those. God himself was the only one that could meet the laws of a righteous God. Only God. I'm thankful because I need that kind of Savior because I broke them. I can't get past the first one. I have no other gods before me. I can't get past that. I'm sorry. I've broken that. And I recognize that because I've put things ahead of my life. And I did so for years of my life, putting me ahead of everything else and putting others ahead of, of God. And I made other gods. And they were shaped and looked and smelled and acted just like I did. <laughs> And only God is the one that is due our worship, our praise, our honor, our glory, His glory. And I'm so thankful for that. And here Jesus stands in the midst of them and he, they, they drill Him and they go and they say, Who are you? And they don't recognize who He is. They had to find people to come in and uh, use His own words against Him. <coughs> you find that. It says... Look down to verse 55. Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. That's a problem. They've already met in secret, and even the Sanhedrin had certain 
boundaries that they recognized. And one of them was this, that according to the law, you had to have witnesses that agreed. We still have that rule in courts today. If you have multiple witnesses and one witness says one thing, one the other, and uh, their, their testimony is on equal value, uh, you know what? It either cancels itself out or it, it's going to you know, contradict. And you can't convict somebody beyond a reasonable doubt with conflicting testimony. They had a problem. They couldn't find somebody. I think of that because, on the other hand, you, they couldn't find anybody also that would come to Jesus' defense. Think of all the crowds of people. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Remember that? I mean, where are those guys? Well, I mean, you could argue they were, didn't have time to get there maybe. And that's true. I'm sure there were people that had no idea this was going on. And yet Jesus said that this would happen. Way back there in Mark chapter 10, he said that the Son of Man would be handed over to the the high priests and the the scribes, and he would be put to death. He told them that. He told them way before this, this would take place. Well, it was illegal because of why it was held. It was held basically taking an innocent man and trying to make him guilty somehow. That was another reason. There was no accuser by the way if you have someone looking they're looking to says they look to put him to death but found none i don't know about you but in any legal proceeding that takes place you have to have an accuser you have to have someone said a crime has been committed you have to have a prosecutor in this case they bring jesus and then they go we gotta look for a crime somehow we're gonna do that and and people like that too don't they we like to take uh, Jesus and somehow find a way to get a, get away with really who he is. And at the base of all of this is the the whole idea that either he is truly who he says he was and is, he is God, God the Son, the Righteous One, the Holy One of Israel, or he's not. And some have argued, I think it was C.S. Lewis in, in his Mere Christianity uh, he, he argued this later on. Others uh, like um, came along and talk about Jesus. You either have three options with Jesus. And this is kind of thinking logically. And some of you guys have, have you know, heard this before. But either, because see, Jesus made himself to be equal with God. And he said that. All right? He said it numerous times. And you got three options with that. If, if someone comes up and says, I'm God, either they're crazy. Right? A lunatic. Because only a lunatic, only a crazy man would say he's God and believe it. Or you're a liar. That's the second possibility. Because there's lots of people that come along and they can say something, but it's a lie. Or the third, and I believe where the evidence points, the third option is Lord. He is Lord. He is who he said he is. And they were looking down those other ways. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar. But I don't want to admit that he's Lord. Because if I admit that he's Lord, then I have to deal with me, my sin, my problems. I have to stand before a righteous judge someday. And that's really the problem man has, is that we, don't, we want to have our sin, but we don't want to have it dealt with. And it's always there, and we know it, and, and death reminds us of that, and all the curses of sin in this world reminds us that sin is there. And i got to deal with it. And the only way to deal with it is with Christ. That he's the only answer. 
Verse 56, it says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. That's the problem that is mentioned. They were not consistent. And I think of that because in the law, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, right? The Ten Commandments. It says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. They violated that law right there. How about in Psalm 27, verse 12? Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. Psalm of David, but a prophetic psalm of Christ. How about the book of Proverbs? These six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. That's the the next one. Those are the deadly sins of the flesh, right? A lot of people know these things. A lying tongue. You think about that. Lies, lies, lies. That's a grave sin. It really is. One little lie can set on course a whole direction of a nation, an individual family, a nation, a a world. It really can. Think about that. I've been recently going through uh, studies in World War II again and reading about things and the history of that and all that. And I, I look at the direction the whole world went and <laughs> millions and millions and millions and millions of people died during that war. And it was based upon much lies, a direction. Every bullet that was fired, every bomb that was dropped, every person that was executed, it was based upon a lie most of it i'm saying as far as the 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 direction that began i I think of that adolf hitler's book mein kampf when he wrote that it's estimated i think that six jews died for every word that's in that book yeah people want to bring that back today you know i don't know they were bearing false witness against him their testimonies did not agree and then some rose up and bore false witness against him (laughs) you can sense the tension now they're all up they're out of bed they're meeting in the middle of the night they have jesus before them he's been arrested the romans know about it now we got to do something with him and in that awkward silence nobody speaks up finally says somebody says "I'll, i'll say something against this man and then others would come and do the same thing and he, he, they use his own words. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and with it, within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. There was still some conflicting testimony. And of course, it's a quotation there of when Jesus spoke about the temple. And look at John chapter 2. We go there. And John records for us, and Jesus answered and said to them, this is the religious rulers again, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the temple is this massive you know, temple complex and the, the holy part of the temple, the holy of holies and all that. The temple itself was on that temple mount area, the temple grounds. It was the center of the Jewish universe in many ways. All, right? all their religious activities centered around that temple. And it had been decades in the building, even more than that, if you add the fact that it had been built, destroyed, and built, and you know, 
partially destroyed, all that. And then under Herod the Great, he had made this elaborate complex and it had taken decades to get to that point. It still was not completed yet. And you have Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That statement in itself was quite a statement. He wasn't referring to the temple made with stones. And by the way, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Just so you know that. That's Acts 17 when Paul writes or talks to the Athenians there on uh, Mars Hill and he says that. He says God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And I, I understand that you know, people think, well, if we come uh, you know, to a sanctuary, we come to a special monument, something, that God's there. Well, I'll tell you a little secret, he's everywhere, all right? But it was a place where he did meet with the people. And it was a commandment that it was to be built. And it was patterned after the instruction of God. And you read that in the book of Exodus and then Leviticus also. uh, Talking about the ceremonies that went on there. All of those things. And later on man added to that, added to that, and added to that. Made it much more complex than it should have been. And Jesus comes along and says he's going to destroy it. Mm. That, That didn't sit well. Again, here's Jesus. He's upsetting the apple cart. And I, I, I think of that because, you know, I've come across people over the years, not many of them, thankfully, but, you know, they don't like change of any sort. And you go in, and, and I'm glad we have chairs that move at least. You know, we can move them around if we had to, but, you know, there were years when you had pews, the church pews. And, and I've been in many churches, and they got the, lay, the, the name of the person that donated the money for that church pew, and, and you know, their great-grandson sitting there, you know, uh, or someone, and, and don't move them. You know, their favorite song is, I shall not be moved. And don't become like that. That's very pharisaical. There's nothing wrong with, I think, honoring people that have helped and all this stuff. I'm not criticizing that. I, I, I have certainly been involved in some great churches like that. But I'll tell you, be careful. Because God is at work and he will work on the temple mount he will work in a church or he can work in a parking lot he can also work out in the woods somewhere too and he's always at work he's holding everything together and he never takes a break from it at all and here is jesus standing before them and they're questioning all these different things right jesus then the jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and and you will raise it up in three days But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You see, the Bible says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The word dwelt is tabernacled. It means to tent. (laughs) All right? To wreck your tent in, in things. And that's what Jesus did. When he put on flesh, God dwelt with us. His body is a temple. By the way, for the Christian, for the believer, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that your body also is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you have received Christ as your Savior, you have turned to Him by faith and you have have asked forgiveness of your sins and all that, you come to Jesus Christ and the Bible says you're born again. You're born from above. You've been given the Spirit of God, baptized into one Spirit, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. And because of that, God dwells within you. I love that very fact that we get him and you know he says you're bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body and that's all instruction that is given there and jesus when he put on flesh he didn't become less god but rather 
he all of a sudden was bound by flesh, purposely. Philippians 2 talks about that, right? He became obedient. He humbled himself, right? Found in the form or fashion of a man, but he became obedient, even obedient unto death and the death of the cross. He did that in the flesh. So he was talking about his body and he was talking about particularly his death. When his body would be put in that ground and three days later or on the third day, he would be risen again, just exactly as was prophesied and not only there, but many other verses. Well, I better move on here because we're running around out of time rather quickly. And there's a, there's a lot that goes on here. But you really have this false accusation. Um, and, and I think of that because many were willing to put their lives on the line to falsely accuse Jesus. That's how bad it was. Deuteronomy in chapter 19 and in verse 16. Listen to this. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother." So shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall uh, be for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. That's pretty harsh. I'm I'm glad the law was not always enacted. You know why? I'm glad it still isn't. Because it would be a lot of us wouldn't have any feet and hands. There'd be a lot of us walking around with no eyes, no teeth, no life. Thankful that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And that's the message of the, of the word of God. And here you have the high priest, Caiaphas, he's standing there. He's the one that should be the advocate for Jesus. He's the one that should be saying, this is an innocent man. And you false witnesses should be put to death because that's what you're calling for, to be, have him put to death. But he doesn't. He conspires with them. And it leads to this great dramatic event. This great dramatic event. Let's go back to our text. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? I mean, he wants to trip him up. What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And look at this. Jesus said, I am. And I just want to stop there because there is a period in my Bible right there. I am. There's that Greek word again, the phrase, ego ami. It is the exact phrase that he uses in John chapter 10 and in verse 58. And when he says, before Abraham was, I am. It's the same phrase that is used in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Let's go back there, Exodus 3, 14. When Moses asked, whom shall I say has sent me? And it's God that is sending him. And God said to Moses, I am who I am, the all-existent one. 250 years before Christ came, the Jews took their own Hebrew scriptures and they translated it by careful translation into Greek. And they call it the Septuagint. There were 70 scribes who knew the word of God and they carefully translated Hebrew to Greek. When they came to Exodus chapter 13, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, they came to this and when they came to the phrase I am, they said ego ami. 
That's the only word that could be used. The all-existent one. When you come to the New Testament and you have Jesus speaking to the Sanhedrin and the high priest and he says, I am. He's making himself equal with God. Very clear. How do I know that? Because look at the reaction of the priest. This is not the only occasion of this. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and the coming and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's attributed only to God, by the way, that God would be the righteous judge. The Lord would be the righteous judge. So here Jesus is saying, I am God, I am the righteous judge, and I will come again. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. Blasphemy is a word that means that you have violated the very nature of who God is. And he says, what do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. When you read the law, I won't go through this, through the whole thing, but but look it up. You read the law, blasphemy and making oneself equal with God was worthy of death. That's all they wanted. They wanted to put him to death. And here is this one standing before them, and he says, I am God. Wow. And they said, what more do we have to hear? And they wanted to kill him. And that's the same reaction, by the way, in John 8, 58, when he says, I am. They took up stones to kill him. They would have stoned him right there because he made himself equal with God. And there are numerous occasions, uh, well, many occasions in that uh, where he he does that. Um, And you see this drama. And by the way, the high priest, it becomes this dramatic thing he tears his clothes rip you know he was out of control by the way he disqualified himself as high priest as soon as he did that leviticus chapter 21 leviticus chapter 21 verse 10 He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. You can't get any clearer than that. And my friends, what you have standing before Caiaphas is the rightful high priest of Israel, Jesus. What you have standing before Caiaphas uh, is the righteous judge of all of Israel, not Israel alone, but all the world. And Caiaphas rips his clothes. And you know what? I think that speaks volumes. Because he did so probably out of anger and as a show. And yet he also disqualified himself legally at that very point in doing that. Wow. Jesus didn't tear his own clothes, by the way. They were torn from his body. And he went and silently he bore this. And they spit upon him. And that's what it says here. Let's go back to our text and close off here. Look. It says. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him. And blindfold him. And to beat him. And to say to him prophesy. Other gospel writers put it this way. They hit him and they said prophesy. Who hits you? Made sport of him. It's not justice. It's a mockery of things. And yet that's what we do in our sin. When we don't turn to Christ, we spit in God's face. And yet he'll have his way. 
We looked at this last week. I closed with this. Psalm 2. Listen. Psalm 2, verse 10. It's a messianic psalm. It's about the, the sun. All right? The sun, S-O-N. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Listen, Caiaphas. <laughs> listen. Listen. You listen. I listen. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That, the end of that verse, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Aren't you thankful that you can have that? You know, Jesus, when he speaks to them and he identifies himself, he is the one who is uh, the blessed one, you know. He is blessed of God because he is God. Do you know him? Or are you like that group, the Sanhedrin, that stood there that night, most of them as they stood there looking to condemn an innocent man? By the way, no matter what they did, it was part of the plan because he would be handed over into the hands of sinners. He'd be cruelly treated. And all the evil things that man could ever devise come to fruition really in the cross. And there as Jesus dies, suspended between heaven and earth, he becomes sin for us, the Bible says. And if you'll just look to him and cast your faith, trust him, trust him to forgive you, he will. I'm glad. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, right? Father, I thank you for the word of God. And Lord, I... I'm always amazed at this account as we read down through it. Those that should have known better seem to not. And those that probably did know better seem to still go forward with something they knew was wrong. And Lord, I pray today that you might convict people in their hearts. And Lord, if even here, some are here today, they don't know you. They've been strangers to you and you to them. That even today before leaving this room, they would call out in their hearts and their faith, Lord, to to believe on you. As you have said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Lord, I believe that that would have been possible for any one of those that stood in judgment that night. They could have been saved. There's no evidence that they were. No evidence, Lord, that uh, anything really happened too much there other than something that was very evil. But we thank you that you meet evil and sin and you do so through victory the victory of the cross, the victory of the grave, that you've been ascended into heaven and you're coming again. And Lord, we look by faith to that trump of God, which will sound someday. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the righteous judge. In Jesus' name, amen.